Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pot Dough Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica, and we are on site for a special rooftop bar edition of Pot Dough Podcast. And today I'm here with Sarah Benvenuti, who has worked in arts and culture for over a decade, gaining experience across the country in theater, dance, film, education, and other cultural fields. She's worked with over 40 small arts organizations and individual artists, assisting them with fundraising, financial, administrative, planning, and interim needs. Benvenuti began her career as director of Future Tenant in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Before founding Benvenuti Arts, she served as special events manager of Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., managing director of Curious Theater Company in Denver, Colorado, and director of development and interim managing director of The Civilians in Brooklyn, New York. Having consulted with small organizations and individual artists since 2011, she founded Benvenuti Arts in 2014 with the goal of helping small and mighty organizations build up the operational support needed to create and produce their own work. Benvenuti earned her BM in music education, piano and voice from Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania, and her MA in arts management from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So welcome, Sarah. Hi. We're really excited to have you because this is our first time that we're profiling someone who works more behind the scenes in helping artists realize their vision with fundraising, which is obviously the most important thing in order for an artist to realize their vision. Yeah, I hope I can be helpful to everyone. So we'll just start from the beginning where we always start. How did you become interested in the field that you're in and... How did you come to be who you are today? (laughs) Well, as you read, I went to school for music education, piano and voice, and I've played instruments, marching band, actually danced a little bit when I was younger. I was in dance classes up until I got really, really tall and then moved on to basketball. (laughs) And then when I was graduating from college, I had a panic moment where I was realized I didn't actually want to teach and I didn't want to perform either. I was just a perfectly adequate musician. And I had a professor come up to me and say, you know, you should look in arts management. You already do all these things on campus, organizing productions and doing fundraising events and stuff. You should look into it. And so I did. And I loved the idea. So I went straight to grad school at Carnegie Mellon. And I'm so glad I did. I think for there's a lot of people out there who are artists by training, artists in their soul. But, you know, my skills really lie in administration and that side of things. So when I left graduate school, I was not at all interested in fundraising. I just wanted to be in general management. And slowly but surely, over the next three or four years, I realized that I was actually fundraising anyways. And so when I got here in New York, I started working with some individual organizations, helping them with some grant writing, helping some individual artists, doing some fundraising, stuff like that. And after working with civilians for about three years, realized that I didn't want to keep moving to large organizations. I really wanted to stick with small organizations and and individual artists. I loved being really close to the art and I also thought some of the most interesting work was being done by groups and individuals who weren't beholden to bigger structures. And yeah, I find especially with a lot of my clients that they're doing phenomenal work. They just don't have the time or specific expertise to do the fundraising or the uh, perhaps some administrative things. And so I can come in, I can do a little bit and it makes a huge difference, which uh, is a lot of fun for me. Yeah, that's really great. And I love that you really enjoy supporting 
smaller artists and mid-sized organizations because as you said those are the ones that really don't have the time to do it absolutely it's a lot of fun <laughs> yeah and so when a small or mid-sized nonprofit organization approaches you to help them with their fundraising needs generally speaking what is your role or I guess how do you introduce yourself as the role that you'll take on when you're helping them yeah it's really different for each client I think one of the ways Benvenuti Arts is different in the way I want to keep it different is that I don't come into a relationship with a client saying here's what we do it costs this much and that's it for me it's really important to to hear what they think they need hear where they want to go their goals and then work with them to figure out how we can get them there for me it's also important as a company that Benvenuti Arts doesn't do everything for a client that there's a lot of teaching going on a lot of the artists I work with have volunteers, they have maybe perhaps a, a part-time staff person, an intern, someone who really wants to learn. And so I will often do a lot of advising of that person, helping them figure out how to write their own language, how to cultivate relationships with funders. And that's another important key too, is that I don't want a funder having a relationship with me. I want a funder having a relationship with the artist. And so a lot of times I'm facilitating those relationships. So when I start working with a company, usually we'll sit down and have a half hour introductory conversation, just fleshing out sort of where they want to go, what they think they need, and then what they can spend. Because oftentimes those are two very different directions. You know, they really want someone to do grant writing for them so that they can get grants, but they only have a very little amount to spend. So they absolutely shouldn't, I don't think, should be spending that on me we should spend that in a way that helps them to be able to do that in-house and do it more efficiently. And so I think that's one of the ways that I differ from a lot of consultants. My background, having managed some small and mid-sized organizations myself, I realize the value of that dollar in a different way. And I also think that these artists are, are the people that should be speaking about their art to, to the people funding them. And so if I can help them do that in a way that doesn't spit, waste so much of their time. Often I find that potential clients who are already already know how to do things they just don't think they do um, or they're spending a lot of time doing things that absolutely are unnecessary you know I think corporate corporate grant applications is one of those things that those are grant applications and forms that are available to anyone online and so a lot of artists will say well we filled out the con ed application online and I'd say okay that was two to five hours of your time that was a waste unless you know someone at Con Ed, you know? And so even just walking through those efficiencies with them. So yeah, so, so my role is anywhere from just advisor to actually working with them to create a plan, working with their stakeholders, their board, et cetera. I've also gone in and had relationships where I actually do a little more in-depth financial management and board leadership with an organization. Perhaps they want to reach a certain goal. Perhaps they have a deficit that they want to you know, wipe out. I can help them in a more intimate way, really being a part of the team for a little bit. Benvenuti Arts itself will do grant writing for some of these organizations, whether it's for a short term for a specific project and they want to make sure they do it really well, or if it's ongoing and they have the capacity to be farming that out to somebody else, we will manage that too. So it's sort of across the board what, what I end up doing for different clients. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> this is always a theme that I point out with our various interviewees, but what I love about your process is you always meet people where they are absolutely, and assess what they need. But what I really love about what you do as a consultant is you work from more of a capacity building component where you're really educating and teaching them. 
Absolutely. I definitely have the teach Amanda Fish principle. And it's important that to me that clients aren't reliant on me. I think that that's one of those other things that perhaps sets me apart as a consultant. I'm not trying. I would absolutely love if they come back to me when they have a future need. I just had a client one of the first clients I took on for a big organizational planning project when I first started Benvenuti Arts, we you know, set up set up their financial processes, we set up a fundraising calendar for them, all this stuff because they were just getting their 501c3 and they've been having some phenomenal success and they just came back to me and want to talk about strategic planning now. So that's awesome. You know, it's been three years. I didn't need to be there in the interim for them, though they would occasionally email me with a question here and there and I love that sort of relationship. But being able to come back to me and say, okay, we've, we've We've reached that goal. Let's get to the next goal. That's awesome. And I don't think that an organization can do that if they're dependent on me. It's it's always going to be coming to me for that information instead of bringing that in-house, holding those relationships, and really learning learning how to do that themselves. Yeah. Again, I just can't say how much <laughs> I appreciate that because I've seen a lot of consultants come in to large nonprofit organizations just from my own work experience Yeah. and also working as a consultant. And... I really think it's unfair what consultants do in the field and it gives other consultants a bad rap. So I'm just really happy that you go in and just try to educate them so that you're building them to be able to continue to do work. And of course, there's going to be things that they always need help with. And so you're always there for them. Yeah. And it's uh, the other piece to that is that 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even a consultant could come in and say, here are the best practices, do them. And it might it might be one size fit all. But, but nowadays, that's just not true. There's so many different ways to do things, so many ways of reaching people, so many resources out there to market your organization, to, uh, to realize your artistic vision differently, et cetera, et cetera, that to come in as a consultant and say, this is what I do, this is what it costs, this is what you need doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And and it also means that that organization is not going to be able to adapt to the way that things are changing so quickly in the future if they're reliant on this one way of doing things and this one consultant, you know. And so, again, I think that it's important to remain flexible in these days. And I think that these small organizations are the most flexible and dynamic. And I want to support that, not, not hinder that. Yeah. Again, great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in the dance community in general and the arts community, it's just, it's a community. Like, we all need to help each other. Mm -hmm. And and again, I just love that approach you take. I can't say it enough. (laughs) Thanks. So you touched on some of these on what you said recently, but what are some key ongoing fundraising strategies that every artist and organization should have in place? I think there's some things that a lot of artists are already doing but they don't realize they're doing it. For instance, just staying in communication with people and talking, you know, uh, social media, MailChimp, whatever it is, you know, make it so possible to stay in touch with people these days. And I think a lot of artists are doing that pretty well. What I would say to add to that is really being sure that, for instance, if someone does give you money, that you are really focusing on making sure you talk to them throughout the year in a way that's not to just ask them for money. And so you have all these great resources. It could be as simple as a quarterly donors only email or once a year in the, you know, if they give to you in November, in June, you make a couple phone calls to people who gave you money and just say, Hey, I wanted to touch base on what we're doing and let you know, because you've been such a great supporter for us. You know, those touches are so important. And, and for a lot of donors, if your friends and family are one thing, but for a lot of donors, a lot of what they're interested in is supporting you, making sure that you reach your artistic goals, but also just 
they want to be around artists. They want to be in that world. For a lot of people who are outside of it, giving a little bit of money to be able to hang out with artists and have those conversations and be a part of that vision is exactly what they want. So you calling them up in June and being like, hey, we've had a really interesting year and, you know, it was partially because of your gift. I just wanted to say thank you. Or a board member doing that, you know. I, I know a lot of board members can be a little nervous about the fundraising part of being a board member. I think a really easy entry point is to have them do thank you calls, whether it be while you do a fundraising campaign or some other time during the year, having board members just call up people and say, I'm a board member with this organization and you know, we're just saying thank you to everybody and I just wanted to talk to you. Have you seen the show this year? What did you think? Did you want to know anything more about where your money went this year or, or your support, what did for us? I love that idea because that's simultaneously hitting at board engagement, which I know a lot of organizations struggle with. Absolutely. And that when you ask board members to fundraise, they, uh, a lot of times they'll freak out. <laughs> you know, they'll be like, oh, I'm not a fundraiser, I'm not a fundraiser. And what they don't realize and what I didn't realize until I started managing theater companies was that fundraising is just talking to people. It's just saying thank you. It's just listening to them. And, and I think so many artists do that already day to day. And it's a thing that you can absolutely have board members do and it doesn't feel like fundraising. I would say another thing that's really important and I notice this a lot with when I go into companies that are a little older especially if they've been around for 15, 20 years, you know, the resources available to them have changed so much in the past two decades. It's so important to track everything. There are a lot of resources out there that weren't here even five years ago. You know, when I left Denver, I was, we had just implemented a new database and looking for a solution that incorporated both fundraising needs and ticketing needs was incredibly difficult. Today, you can find a ton of them for at various price ranges online. So track everything. There's a lot of free resources. You can go into like a CRM, like HubSpot, where it's, you know, tracking sales and stuff. And that's a little outside of perhaps performance, arts and culture needs. But then there's things like Artfully, which, you know, it's a free resource through Fractured Atlas. You can sell tickets through it. You can also track donors through it. You know, if it's a free resource, it's going to be a little limited. But really what you just need to be doing is tracking everything because once you get to it a little bigger, once you get to a certain point, you want to see how long a donor has been with you. You want to see, you know, where have they bought tickets to us before? Donor research is a really creepy thing you can do. You know, you can go in and you can... Go on Zillow and see what a person's house is worth. You know, you can you can <laughs> you can go on certain websites and find out if they've ever given a political donation. You know, if you Google Sarah Benvenuti donor, I'm sure my name is going to pop up on certain websites. So there's so much you can do with that. And while you don't have the time to do it now, in five years, maybe you have an intern and you're like, hey, do some donor research because I'm looking to cultivate some people up to be a little bigger donor. I want to see if they're in our our pool of uh, audience members and chances are they are already you know chances are that big donor has already bought tickets to your show you just didn't know and so having that information written down somewhere in one place is really important so you don't have to dig for it later on that note and i'm sure there are so many other fundraising strategies to hit on in terms of donor research so you said you can google and find things are there other softwares available that might be a little more affordable for artists? There's some stuff out there that's more expensive, but I actually don't think you need to pay much to do some donor research. There's websites like everyone uses, like LinkedIn. You can go on LinkedIn, you can see what somebody's job is, and then you can go on Glass Ceiling and see what that 
position typically makes, you know? And so if someone's a managing director at some investment firm and you go on glass ceiling and you see that person should be making high six figures, it's like, okay, they gave us a hundred bucks last time, but there's capacity there. Let's, they come to our shows. Let me make sure that I have someone in the lobby next time to just welcome them and say hi when they pick up their ticket. Or maybe I'll slip a little like free drink card in their, in their, ticket for when they pick it up you know there's little yeah. things you can do little invitations you can make and I actually don't think you have to spend a ton of money it's if you go to your local university if you happen to be in a city that has one and find somebody who's in a nonprofit management course or in an arts management degree program and try to get an intern this is the type of stuff that they actually really really want to be learning and really want to be doing so it's Again, it's really, really creepy. I like the stuff you can find <laughs> online. But it really helps you not waste your time in sort of casting a wide net, which is important for building up the bottom of that donor pyramid. But in order to cultivate people up, you want to be able to get a little more specific. So I would say, you know, LinkedIn, glass ceiling, just Googling somebody's name and donor, Zillow, good resources, all of those. Oh, that's really good to know. Yeah. I, mean, I had no idea. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really weird what you can find online. It is a little scary. (laughs) Another thing that I really liked about what you said earlier, so this idea of, you know, when people are donating to you, it's like they want an experience. And I like this idea of catering to your donors or your audience needs. Like, who is your audience and how do you meet these needs? And it makes sense. A lot of people do want to be around artists because maybe they have a corporate nine-to-five job and they're just trying to be connected to that world in some way. Absolutely. And one of the things that you can do too up front at any time, one of my clients, Notes in Motion is a great example of this. They've been a pretty small organization for a long time. I think they they were under 100 grand in budget for a long time. But one of the things that they've done great from the beginning is they work in schools, they do dance education in schools, and they do surveys simple paper surveys that they have teachers, students, and parents fill out. And it's really easy and they scan them and they put them in Google Drive and they have them. Now that they're a little bigger and they have a staff member to go through them and pull out really good ones, they can do that. But anytime that we've applied for a grant, we always have this backup saying people love what we do. And it also allows them to get feedback directly on how to improve their programs in real time. So it's it's really simple. You can go on SurveyMonkey and do one through your e-blast. It's a little harder nowadays, I think, to get people to open emails and follow through on that stuff. But that's some way you can do it. You can also, at shows, you know, stick a little survey in the program being like, I hope you'll fill this out and, you know, drop it in this bucket on the way out. You know, just getting a little bit of that information, data about who your audience is. When you start applying to bigger grants, they want to know that stuff. And a lot of organizations have to go, well, our audience is a general theater audience or, you know, be a little more anecdotal about it, but if you have a little bit of data, I would never suggest that you create programming to reach a specific audience unless that's in your mission, but knowing who that audience is, knowing perhaps where your strengths and weaknesses are with those audiences is really important, and it will also help you in the future to do some fundraising and really... I think when you're in something, you know, when I'm writing a grant, I try to have someone else read it because at some point I stop really seeing what I'm writing. You know, I think as an artist, you create work and, you know, you're in it every day that 
you don't necessarily always understand how people are reflecting on it, you know? And so getting that information also gives you some really interesting insight into why people like you. And it may be something you never realize, something easily that you can discuss with that person. Also gives you a really good way, you know, donor levels. I think that's one of those best practices things that everyone's like, oh, here's our donor levels and what you get at that level. That's fine. I think more important is to be responsive to what really interests your audience members. And so if, if you get a lot of feedback as to, you know, is, oh, it's so interesting that you have playwright talkbacks all the time. I'd love to know more about that process. Well, you already have a reading series. Sorry, I'm talking theater. You already have a reading series. So start inviting donors at a certain level to that reading series, you know, like you already are doing a lot of things that your donors want. You don't have to create packages or do more to cultivate them. Absolutely. It's just making sure that all of your different audience members are connected to what you're already doing. Absolutely. And kind of like on Facebook, whenever you pay for an ad, Facebook will tell you which of your messages are performing better than others and they suggest what you should boost. It kind of seems like the same idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that marketing and fundraising are so intertwined nowadays. I know we're going to eventually talk about crowdfunding, but there is the, you know, again, the casting the wide net way of fundraising where you need to get all that information. You need to know who those people are. You need to just reach a bunch of people. And then there's really starting to target in, you know, and that that information is so key to that. Yeah. And then that sort of ties back to what you were saying about data and making sure that you have a good way to document all of this information because you just want to be organized and know, I guess, which audiences. Yeah. And, you know, I will do individual fundraising campaigns for some of my clients and a lot of people have experience doing them. And one of the things I notice nowadays is no one does, people aren't doing mail because it costs money, which I totally get. You can totally do a full campaign online. Here's the thing. The people who are giving the most money are typically a little older and those people still do respond to mail campaigns. So if you have a little bit of data about why people like to see you, how long someone's going to be given to you, if you can pull out those donors who have been giving to you over a number of years or donors who gave to you for two years and then didn't give to you again, maybe what you do is you just send a letter to those 50 donors who gave to you two years ago or a year ago but haven't given to you in a year or two. Maybe you just send a letter to them because that letter is an extra prompt. Like you just want to touch people multiple times, multiple ways. That sounds really creepy again, but um, you know, mail, email, social media, maybe a thank you phone call. And that mail doesn't have to be again, a broad thing. If you have that data, if you've got a few years of donor campaigns under your belt, you can go back through and go, okay, well, I've got 50 people who used to give but aren't haven't given in two, a year or two. Let me just mail them a specific letter and see what happens. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, before spending a lot of money like test what happens. Absolutely. And and again, a lot of a lot of the older donors still respond to mail. They may not give you, they may not send you a check, but that mail piece reminds them in a different way to then go and give online. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it seems like so much of fundraising is intuitive, but honestly, if someone doesn't tell me these things, I just don't know it. (laughs) Well, like I was saying to you before we jumped on here, when I talk to new clients, I'm always saying, please stop me if you know this already, because I think a lot of people already do these things. I don't ever want to waste their time with something they already know, but half the time they're going, oh, yeah. Of course that's true. You know, like they, they know it. They just haven't had time to really think through and do it because they've been creating work. And that's where their time should be spent. 
And sometimes too, it's nice to be reminded like how important something is because even if we have done something in the past, after so many years of experience, you just need basic reminders or going back to like the, the most important pieces. Absolutely. And a lot of times with clients, if I come in and they're like, we need help building our donor pool and I look at what they've already done, I will say, we don't have to do anything different. Let me just advise you with this one because I'm a different set of eyes. You guys have been doing the same campaign for five years. Let me just try to help you shake it up instead of me doing anything different necessarily. It's just like, let's add some things. Let's try a few different things and see what happens. And half the time that's enough. I was going to say for many organizations or any staff member, I think they appreciate anyone coming in and helping them refresh things and help them just freshen up their language and the way that they're doing things because we all get stuck in these patterns. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing with foundations, government grants. I, I can't tell you how many organizations I talk to who say, well, that funder doesn't like us. Well, we just don't know what to do about our language, you know, and, and half the time it's like, it doesn't matter if the funder likes you or not. There's a, a panel judging that grant or whatever. It has sometimes, it typically has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that you've been submitting the same application year after year. Well, if they didn't give it to you the first time, you should probably try to freshen things up, tell them something new, tell, show them how you've improved. Or if you've applied once and they didn't give it to you and you never apply again, most funders, you're not going to get that grant the first time around. They need to get to know you. They need to see how you develop. They need to see how you improve yourself, how you fulfill on the things you say you're going to do. And so just because you didn't get the grant one year or even two years doesn't mean you should stop applying. You need to call them. Hey, how did you like that grant application? Can you give me some feedback on what you didn't understand? We always want to improve our processes. Most funders want to give that feedback. And so doing that year after year, it can be frustrating when you never get that money but it really does take time and it is it's a cultivated relationship just like individuals are yeah that makes perfect sense yeah all right so the case for support I know that this is a very important statement so that artists can rally around this basic statement and get fundraisers to support them what are some key things that should be highlighted in a strong case for support or what are some do's and don'ts So I think for me, I usually go at at a case for support as sort of boilerplate language is is what I talk with clients about because I want them to have something that's actually practically useful, that's not just here's the thing we know internally and we can use to drive us. I want it to be also something that they can cut and paste, put in a grant application that is really practical both internally and externally. And so when it's a case for support, I think that you need to have a few different pieces. You want to have the inspirational part. And this is the thing, of course, most artists are so good at doing. You know, why is this work needed? What was the inspiration? Uh, What is our process like? What are we trying to achieve? That's all incredibly important. But a lot of people miss out on the practical. The amount of times you're going to apply to a funder who actually knows how dance is created created are very, very, is very rare. You know, most of the times you're going to apply to a funder who maybe is passionate about dance, but isn't a dancer themselves. Or you're going to apply to a funder that like, you know, a government funder whose panel maybe includes people who aren't, have never intersected with the arts before, but they're the representative of a council person's office or something. So if you say, you know, this dance is representative of this, and it was inspired by this, and our movement means this, great, but they're going, how many dancers? 
How long does it take you to rehearse this work? How many people you're going to reach in your audience? What are the ticket prices? What times are the performances? Because if it's a daytime performance on the weekdays, who are you trying to reach? If it's an evening performance, you know, what part of town are you in? Is it hard to get back to home afterwards? There's all these questions that people, I think, forget to answer because they think, as they're writing, again, you're in it, you know it, they think it's obvious. I've actually sat on panels where I've had a program officer where I've read the application and one of the questions, for instance, is how is the work selected? How do you make artistic decisions? And the organization will say, our artistic director is the leader of the organization, will direct our plays this season, here's all the plays, right? But they've ne- right? They've never said, our artistic director selects the plays from an open call for applications. You know, and so I literally one time said, well, they're an artistic director-driven organization, so they probably select the plays. And the program officer said to me, you can't, you can't assume that. It's not in the application. And that's a pretty strict panel process. I think that's mainly government grants. You're going to see that. But you never know. And so, But it makes sense even for foundation funders. They want everything to be spelled out. I mean, that's absolutely. also just the basic tools of writing. You don't want someone to have to assume something or question anything after reading it. Yeah. And, and funders want to know that their money's going to be spent well. That's a good investment. So you want to really be clear so that they understand where it's going, how it's going to be used, and how they can check up on you later with it. That does not mean you have to necessarily do anything differently than you would you're probably already doing it well you just aren't telling it that to them in the way that they can hear and one of the things I think a lot of people miss in their applications is um, what does our organization do and, and where are we going you know you've got your mission you've got a boilerplate language for me before I write grants for a year I will write out a full boilerplate which depending on the size of the organization, could be anywhere from four to 10 pages long. And what I basically do is go, I do mission, vision, which is gonna be a little more of that artistically driven, what are we trying to achieve language. And then I do a history, and that's like best of. I think too many organizations don't remember to tout like the really cool stuff they've done. Um, It doesn't always have to be like awards or successes, or I mean like grant successes or something like that, or fiscal successes. It can be as much as like, you know, we have developed in the past 10 years over 150 artists' work. We have paid 300 artists in our five years of existence. You know, it can be as simple as that, really just showing what your values are and and, and how you judge success. And then you get into programs. You really want to have language for all of your programs, both the artistic part of it and also the real practical. How do we select work? How do we work with artists? What are the goals? How many artists are we working with this season? What's the work we're developing, et cetera? What are our partner spaces? And then there's this organizational development piece. You don't have to grow to be successful, okay? That's, I think, an important thing to say. That being said, you want to then show your metrics for success and show that you know where you're going. So if you, especially if you're applying for operational support, if you don't show that you have specific goals for your organization, a funder is going to be less likely to be interested in you. And I think that can even happen with projects. If it's an amazing project, but they feel like the people doing the project don't know where they're going with it, then they're not going to want to fund you. And so being really clear, you know, if you're an ensemble 
organization and you're fiscally sponsored and you know we want to maintain that flexibility um, but it's important to us to always be open to new ensemble members to really focus on paying our artists and so therefore we don't have a paid artistic director whatever that is be really clear about it because you want them to know what you judge as success I think a lot of people think that, oh, funders are looking for this specific criteria. And, and don't get me wrong, absolutely some of them are. But when you begin cultivating relationships with these funders, you begin to realize that they just want to know what success looks like to you. And as long as they can get on board with that, they're fine with it. You just have to be clear about that. That's such a great point because the question is always, what are metrics for success? What are people looking for? And you define it. You're yeah. basically setting your values at the very beginning and yeah. that makes a lot of sense because you're creating the stage for why we believe this is important absolutely absolutely yeah that makes sense i've never thought of it that way before yeah mm-hmm. and again like i said it's it's hard especially in dance because i think there's so few funders who are really working in dance especially at the smaller organizational individual artist level i think it's hard to sort of to buy into that because it there's just not a lot out there unfortunately you know but having those relationships talking to the funders really helps you helps you clarify that for yourself definitely I think the theme we're or I'm uncovering here is just really talking to funders and reaching out to them and I think a lot of people who start to fundraise don't realize that they're way more accessible than you think they are one of the things I'll do for clients a kind of a first step is for uh, small organizations, for a flat fee, I will create a grants calendar for them. And I'll basically say, apply to these funders, don't apply to these funders. Here are 12 to 20 funders I think would work for you. And then I say to them, with the caveat of, you need to call every one of these funders before you start filling out an application, before you start writing a letter of interest or whatever. Like, Because I may give you a funder name that I think is good for you. You may call them and they may say, actually, we've allocated all of our money this year. Apply next year. So if you, if you send the application and you go, Sarah doesn't know what the hell she's talking about because this funder didn't grant us a grant. Well, you never called them. You need to talk to them. Other funders, specifically when I'm talking to organizations or artists that are fiscally sponsored that don't have a 501c3, other funders may say on their website, organizations need to be a 501c3. What they mean is the organization they give the money to, which would be your fiscal sponsor. You know, So in actuality, they will take a fiscal sponsorship, but you need to call them to make sure of that. Other organizations may look like they would absolutely fund you. They fund organizations like you, awesome this this is perfect for us and then you call them and they're like actually we only fund a designated amount of organizations we don't take applications unless we invite you so please don't submit one to us you know maybe we don't know that so it's really important to call funders all the time and, I, and the amount of times a client's like I don't feel like I should call them I'm just like call them <laughs> even if they say to you we don't take calls you're not going to get docked for calling yeah because <laughs> I know when you're doing a basic search on the foundation center online sometimes the information isn't like readily available including phone numbers what are some crafty ways that you can find (laughs) phone numbers from funders well 
I have a good resource on my website that's a, a, a simple guide to fundraising in the arts, and one of the and it's really focused on uh, institutional research, how to do that. So, one of the things that I think is important when you're doing fundraising research, institutional fundraising research, is to not go to the foundation center first. <laughs> Please don't do that because that is so overwhelming, and you're going to be given a whole bunch of places that in actuality you shouldn't be applying to. Look for organizations like you. Go to their websites, get programs when you go see them, and look at who's funding them. Start there. Look for websites. If they don't have websites, go on guidestar.org. Every nonprofit's financial documents, 990s and stuff, are, are public access. So if you go on Guidestar, you'll be able to see the most recent one. It's about you know the ones that are a year and a half old or so. You can open up their 990. You can actually get a lot of information on there. The phone number that's at the top of the 990 is typically a funder's accountant and stuff. You can try that. If there's no other information, they're probably going to ignore you. Um, but you could call and say, hey, I'm trying to reach this foundation. Do you have a phone number? But better than that is to go down. I believe it's typically page 10, at least in the most recent 990s. That changes sometimes. But there's a section there, first of all, that has a little checkbox. And it says, you know, something to the effect of, does this organization, we take, uh, we do not take unsolicited applications. If that box is checked, you cannot send them an application. They will not take it. They will not review it. They only will fund organizations that they invite. Now, here's the big caveat. What that does not mean is that you can never talk to them. So if an organization funds a whole bunch of small dance companies just like you in your community and are not funding you, and then you look at their 990 and they say, do not send us applications, fine, send them invitations. Send them invitations, put them on an e-blast list, maybe do a biannual newsletter to funders or funding prospects. It just says, here's everything we've done. It comes from your artistic director's address, doesn't go through your mail, mail service. And it's just a little newsletter. You can do that. That's not an application. And then they get to know you. Try to invite them. Try to get them to your show because that's how you're going to get them to invite you to fund. Okay. The other thing that's right there, hopefully, and funders are not great always at filling this out, but there's typically an address and phone number of the person you can send the application to or that you can contact for information. The other thing that should be there is what you send as an application. Some of them will have an attachment to the 990 that you can look at and will have more information about that and they'll usually forward it to you in that section. But sometimes they'll say, send us a letter talking about your project. That's not a lot of guidance. Anytime a funder does that, I would suggest a two to three page letter keep it really clear, really specific. For the first time, I would keep it project-oriented. Tell them about your achievements, your mission, your history, and then really focus on the project you're doing, what are the outcomes, what you're looking for. Now, you also need to ask a funder for the amount that you're looking for. And the way you want to do that so that you don't ask for something outrageous, either too much or too little, is at the bottom of the 990, there is going to be a section that lists out every single grant they gave that year. And in that, they're going to list both the name of the organizations and also the amount of the grant. So if a funder says, if you do go to the Foundation Center and it says that they fund dance and then you in, in your community, and then you look and it's like, they only fund the New York City Ballet, they only fund giant dance companies, and they only give grants of 25 grand and above. 
chances are that's not a funder you should be wasting your time on. Likewise, if you're asking for a grant and you what you really need is like 25 grand, that's what you want to ask for. But they are only giving out grants of $500. Don't ask for 2500. <laughs> ask for 500, you know. Look at the range of grants they're they're giving, look at the size of organizations and kind of organizations they're giving to, and look at the number of organizations they're giving to. They may be giving to small dance companies, but they may only give out 3 grants per year. In that case, I might look at past a, a few past 990s and go, okay, are they giving to the same three organizations a year or are they giving to new organizations every year? Because the Bostick Hailbron Foundation, which I might be horribly mispronouncing that, they fund choreographers and dance companies. They don't fund a whole lot of them every year, but they do fund different ones most years. You know, that might be one that you should apply to. So there's a lot of information on those 990s that you can mine for this data and it can be overwhelming because it's a big tax document, but that's a place I go to for information. And then I go to the foundation center. You know, once I've done all of that research, if I'm like, okay, I've only got a handful of organizations, a handful of funders, I might then go to the foundation center, but I might be really specific in what I'm searching for. I won't just search dance in New York. I might go artists in New York, you know, see if they're just funding individual artists. That's going to give you a smaller amount. Maybe you have a specific project focused on, I don't know, the environment. I would actually search for grantors for like environmental projects. That's a tangential field that you could find some interesting funders through. I've, I've had an organization get funding from the National Science Foundation for informal science education to do a theater piece where they worked with scientists and put that information on stage, you know? So there's, there's lots of opportunities out there, but I'd start small. I'd start with organizations that are like you. Try to find a website for those the funders of those organizations. And if you can't do that, find their 990s at GuideStar. That's great. Great advice. Sorry, that was a long one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like such great advice rather than just being confused by all of the search results that come back from the Foundation Center, which definitely are overwhelming for any level of fundraiser. Absolutely. And typically when I have meetings with companies, because I will also do a two-hour meeting at a flat rate where we just sit down and whatever it is they need to talk through, we will just talk that through in those two hours. And the amount of times they've come to me with a list of funders they're applying to, and I'm just like, hacking away at that list being like don't do that don't do that that's a waste of your time that's typically what I spend my time on with organizations yeah so at the rooftop bar that we're at the music just came on so (laughs) it's getting exciting here (laughs) party time (laughs) so now moving on to projects we talked a lot about like general fundraising strategies and really important information about foundation fundraising what are some strategies and ways in which artists can raise fund for specific projects and shows? Yeah. You know, I actually think sometimes that funder foundations aren't necessarily the best resource for this, particularly if you're like, well, we have a show that we're going to do later this year. Foundation process is going to take a number of months. And so that's not something that can turn around very quickly. Though, depending on the city you're in, there are some resources that are institutionally based that are good for quick turnarounds. Like I know San Francisco has Dancers Group and they do pretty quick turnaround on small grants for dance organizations. And so there might be a resource like that in your community. And so that's one place to go. Friends and family 
obviously, you know, I know everyone does it, but that's something individuals, I think a lot of people think, oh, if I hire this consultant or if I just go after these people who fund other dance companies, that's the way, or donors to other dance companies, that can be really hard. You really got to start with your community. And so working through your board members, maybe working with groups that your board members are a part of. One of my clients has a board member who works for Credit Suisse and they ended up getting volunteers through Credit Suisse. And because of that, Credit Suisse gives them a small grant. So thinking about your board members' networks and how you can involve those people too. I think it's really important to also think about ways you can supplement financial giving. I met an artist one time. She was super interesting and she talked about working from a place of abundance instead of a place of scarcity. And she thought that, you know, too much, too often nonprofits work from a place of scarcity. And I, I love that, you know, there's so many resources in our community. There are so many people willing to give their time, willing to give their stuff, but they don't have the money to give, you know? And so are there ways that you can leverage in kind gifts, partnerships that, that are really creative? Really recognizing that kind of support too is really important. It, it gives you a lot of times, I talk about institutional a lot, a lot of times on funder applications, they will say, how much in-kind giving do you have? And if it's like, wow, we have a huge donor, a huge uh, volunteer network. We also get space donated. I have another friend who, who used to work in real estate and she she knew all these places who had office space, who she knew that their, you know, their, their boardrooms were going empty at night. And so she talked to them. She's like, hey, can my theater company come in and rehearse in your meeting room at night? That's awesome. Right? And she was like, we got so much free rehearsal space. You know, that, to me, I was like, that, that is brilliant, you know? And, so, and then you track what that actually saves you. And all of a sudden, you know, you may have a small budget that you're submitting to a funder, but you're showing them that you have an insane amount of actual support. So I think that's another way to think about replacing expenses with in-kind, which I know isn't ideal, but that's one way to go at it. Also, when it comes to corporate, I think a lot of places think corporate and they think they think they're big banks, et cetera. But corporate also means your local organizations. You know, I know that there's beer companies, liquor companies that give to a ton of arts organizations in the city, and that's a great resource for you. Maybe you're doing a special event, so you can have that beer, and all of a sudden, ticket price can go a little higher because people are getting free beer, you know? Or, you know, there's a liquor company that sponsored an organization that I know, and they enjoyed that sponsorship so much, they gave them a cash donation. So there's that. Maybe a local restaurant is really interested, and maybe Maybe they can host an event for you or something like that. Or maybe they'll give you a small gift in order to have their name in the program. You know, so, so when you think corporate, don't think necessarily, especially if you're a small company or an individual artist, don't think big banks, big corporations. Think your local businesses. And what can do you do that's really going to be helpful to them? You know, if, you, if you're sending all of your artists and people over to their bar after the performance, you're making them way more money than they might spend giving you a grand for, you know, to sponsor the performance. So I think that's a that's a resource too that's out there for people. I like events, but I like events when they're done well. You know, I got my start as you read doing special events at Arena Stage in DC. And I think fundraising events can be hugely helpful for small organizations because if you do one show a year, you know, if you're doing three to five performances, maybe some workshops throughout the year, but that's it. You need to stay in touch with your donors. You need to, people need to see you again and really maintain their excitement for you throughout the year. You can do a special event. It can be cultivation. It could be fundraising at the same time. And, and this is a place where that in-kind really helps. You can do an event 
that is almost free for you to put on. And then if you're charging 25 or 35 bucks a ticket, maybe you're making a grand from it. You need to make sure that an event is not just trying to get money out of people. It needs to be serving a lot of purposes, and so it also needs to be mission-based. Too many times I see an organization that's like, well, we, we threw a party at a bar, and we had a musician, but no one came. And it's like, well, people could go to lots of bars and listen to music. Like, What about that was about you? What about that serves your mission? So make sure it's tied into your mission, too. But that's a way to raise a little bit of money, get people excited, but also keep in touch with people throughout the year, and also help cultivate people for your board. Event committees, I think, are an amazing way to get people from that donor to to that board position. They give you money, they love what you do, they show up all the time. Ask them if they'll be on that event committee. Be really clear. What I want you to do on this committee is help us find uh, silent auction items and bring five people. Can you do that? Awesome. If they work really well at that, if they like working with you, then you know you can ask them to be on your board. They've also become more invested, so they're more likely to say yes. So at this point now, you've got an event that's serving three different purposes for you. So I think events are another good way to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's funny, sometimes the fundraising community seems to have this yay or nay view of events. Like, they don't bring in that much money, yeah. but looking at it from this approach makes perfect sense. It's not just about bringing money in. Absolutely. And the second you start spending, if your day starts being taken over by the planning of an event, it's not going well. It really should be the type of thing, at least in the beginning, that you can put, because you don't have a lot of time, that you can put together fairly, sim- fairly simply, that you have some volunteers that will really invest in it, that you have a community that's going to come to it. It's, that's important. I've had a lot of organizations come to me and be like, well, we don't want to do an event because we're afraid it's going to take up too much of our time. But I, I usually talk to them about why they think that. And then we, we will find a way to do an event that makes the most of their time. I mean, that makes sense for like general life advice. Like, why would you want to go all out for an event because you want like some special effect to happen or whatever it is? <laughs> Absolutely. This is the thing about fundraising that I, that I hate to tell you guys, but it's not magic. It's just, it's, you just got to do it. You know, it takes time. It takes a different kind of focus. It takes talking to people. There is no magic bullet. You know, again, we'll talk about crowdfunding, but a lot of people think, oh, we'll do a crowdfunding campaign. It'll go viral. We'll get all that money. I'm sorry to tell you, but if you don't have a community of donors already, if you don't have a really good marketing campaign, if you don't have people ready to blast that out to their community, then it's not going to go viral. You're not going to make money. It's not going to be your magic bullet. So perfect segue. (laughs) So to crowdfund or not to crowdfund? Uh, I feel the way about crowdfunding that a lot of people feel about events. My problem with crowdfunding is kind of twofold. First of all, I find that if people do give to your crowdfunding campaign, they identify with your project. They don't identify with you. And so in the future, when you want to touch base with them again, try to get them to give again, they're like, I don't remember you. Oh, they remember the project or they or they really bought into the project, but they aren't really interested in giving to you long term. So I think it dilutes your donor pool a little bit. I also think that it overwhelms your donor pool because the amount of communication you have with crowdfunding is intense. So I think crowdfunding works when you again, it serves multiple purposes. Yeah. If you use a crowdfunding campaign as kind of a marketing campaign also, because that's what crowdfunding is. It is fundraising, but it is more than anything it is marketing. When clients want to do crowdfunding campaigns, I say to them, let's find you a marketer because that's that's what you have to do. You have to build out a really dynamic marketing campaign to get that thing out there. So it's going to be part of your marketing campaign in the six months leading up to your production. Awesome. 
then great. And if it replaces your annual donor campaign, because you're not going to get, you might get a handful of new donors through crowdfunding, but it's going to start with your current donors. Don't think that like, if you only get $5,000 in individual donors every year, that you're going to be able to get 20000 through crowdfunding. If you don't know where that 20000 is coming from, it's not going to happen. Crowdfunding for location-based performing arts organizations, the chances of that going viral <laughs> are pretty slim to none because people aren't going to get the benefit of what you do if you're only located in one place. So for film, for products, awesome. But for your dance piece that's location specific may not be the best thing for crowdfunding unless it helps you also market the show. There's lots of performing arts organizations that have done phenomenal crowdfunding campaigns and I really do think it's the marketing piece. You really need to have it planned all the way up. You need to be talking to your advocates and making sure they're sharing this and getting it out also. You need to have people set up who are already giving you money to perhaps give a certain time so you push that campaign forward and start momentum to perhaps to give you a match so you can be like if we get 20 gifts by today somebody's going to give a, a grand to the campaign stuff like that and that takes a ton of coordination you can mimic that with an annual donor campaign and the nice thing about an annual more traditional quote-unquote annual fund campaign is that you're building a relationship with donors over time which i think a crowdfunding campaign doesn't necessarily do if you do a crowdfunding campaign and you are really having a marketing focus with it, just make sure you're doing follow-up with those people. That you don't just go, awesome, we're going to talk to them again next year. Do that quarterly donor newsletter that I talked about. Do something to keep them involved. Because if it is one of your dancer's cousins who gave that money, maybe that dancer no longer dances with you. Or maybe you're not doing your work till next year that donor doesn't live in town you need to be talking to them regularly you're never going to get them back otherwise mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense <laughs> and i hadn't made that connection with crowdfunding and marketing that makes perfect sense because you really yeah. want that information to get out there yeah and i think that's also why like film is great with crowdfunding because they have all of this stuff they can release here's clips here's here's our artist here's a little bit of the movie like we're so close like it's uh, it's something that everyone can share in whereas if you're a dancer and you're doing a piece I think that you need you need to have all that lined up and that's additional on top of you already working to create the piece yeah um, like rehearsal clips or something like yeah. that. yeah I also think that what crowdfunding has taught us is is faces faces raise you money so if you're doing an individual campaign like I said having those multiple touches but making sure that like your social media your e-blasts all include people talking about your art whether it's the students you worked with and they're now so excited to be dancing or it's your artists who are like just are so impacted by the the piece you created or it's an audience member who came to see your dance company and was totally changed like have some people testifying for you have some people telling everyone else why they should give to you don't always have it be you telling them why oh that's such a great point and something I've never thought about in the dance world or theater world is sort of this testimonial and that is community engagement that you want the community members who are being impacted by your work to sort of talk about that id theater id theater they are a great organization that is playwright focused they help playwrights develop work they have a two-week 
Seven Devils Playwrights Conference in Idaho, which I totally want to go to and I haven't been to yet. They do a really great job at this because they have worked with so many playwrights over there 20 years of existence and they do a really good job of continuing supporting those playwrights some of those playwrights have had some really big work done at this point been on broadway big awards uh, they, they stay in touch and they get testimonials they'll have those playwrights write about the organization they have people from mccall idaho which is a little vacation lake town will say how much it means to have this conference there every year you know they're, they're they do such a good job of this every year when they release their campaign i'm always like ah I love you guys already, but I'm inspired again, you know? So find, you know, I think this is another thing too. It's, it's the rising tide carries all boats, right? It's okay to look at our organizations and try to like get ideas from them because you're not going to be stealing their donors. Like it, it just, just be inspired by them. Absolutely. You know? And that's just the process of taking best practices, which Absolutely. people have already learned through trial and error. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. One final question. All right. This is getting been, party party in here. <laughs> yeah. And this has been such a great interview with lots of information that I hope is helpful. And I've learned a lot oh, in I'm this so session. So this idea of seeking a sponsorship or becoming a 501c3, I mean, that's always the big question for any artist. You know, at what point should they seek either? What is your take? And generally speaking, what's the advice you give to artists? It really depends on the artist's field and genre and also their goals. If an artist comes to me, their organization is a couple years old, they've done a couple great, you know, for a theater company, a couple great productions. They actually are now doing a, a developmental play series or something like that. They're building things out and they really want to be an organization that serves more artists, does more work. I'm probably going to go to them and say, Look into a 501c3. Let's build you out a board. Let's do some annual planning. Look, let's figure out how to get you for that 501c3. And part of the reason is because they want to be an organization that does more and more and grows. Um, the other part is because they're in theater. And in theater, there are a number of foundations out there that won't give to a fiscally sponsored project. For a dancer, that's very different. If a dancer comes to me and says, I'm doing my dance work, I'm going to work in communities, but basically I'm going to choreograph my work and that's going to be the focus, um, I think a fiscally sponsored project is the way to go. There are uh, a lot of funders out there, not a lot, a number of the funders who fund dance will fund individual choreographers. They will fund fiscally sponsored projects. So it's not going to hurt you not to have a 501c3. But again, if you come to me as a dance company and you say, well, I'm going to create work, but I'm also doing in-school programming, this and that, you know, there's a lot of government money available to you and it's not going to be available to a fiscally sponsored project. So in that case, I might tell you to go get a 501c3. So I think you really need to ask yourself what your goals are. If your goals are to develop as an organization, to grow, to do more, if you're trying to access social services grants or work in that sphere, a 501c3 might, might be a good thing for you. But if you're someone who's really focused on the creation of work, if you really want to look for residencies, uh, individual artist support, that you may not need to then get a 501c3. Fiscally sponsored project, though, I mean, that's something that doesn't hurt you as a dancer. The only thing that changes is there's a small percentage of any gift coming to you that's going to be going to your fiscal sponsor. But in return, your donors are going to get 
they're going to get the tax benefit for their donation. So that that does help. That's just helping getting those individual donors and cultivating those relationships. And again, there are a number of funders out there who won't give to you as an individual artist, but they'll give to you as a fiscally sponsored project. And again, if an organization, if a funder has, we fund 501c3s on their website, just give them a call anyways and just say, hey, I just want to check. Do you fund fiscally sponsored projects? Because chances are they, they might, even if they don't say it. So again, yeah. going back to contacting and talking to the funder. Absolutely. And, and I think the other thing here that I've said before is making sure that you're not doing it for one reason only, you know, like, like events, like crowdfunding. If you're a small organization, if you're an individual artist, you want to make the most of your time. So, ooh, hello. So I don't want you going after a 501c3 because you think then you'll get a government grant. Don't go after it for the money. Go after it for your organizational development reasons. Because you want to branch out and work in different ways, don't go after it. Just Don't do it just for the money. Yeah. yeah. Great. This has been <laughs> such a great interview. And I have learned so much. And I hope our listeners will share this with everyone else Good. who wants to learn a little bit about fundraising. Absolutely. And, and, you know, not to market myself, but one of the things I'll do is is a half hour phone call with anyone that wants to talk to me. And whether we just run through a few things and you don't have the money to work with me yet, that's fine. Or if you want to talk about, you know, a, a further consultancy, great. But it's important to me to be accessible to artists of every level. And so if you want to do a half hour call, if you've just got a couple questions going around by me, get a hold of and touch. how do they get in touch with you? You can find my website at www.benvenutiarts.com. My email is just sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at benvenutiarts.com. And I'm sure you'll spell that out on the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, you can find all that there. And uh, I also have a newsletter that isn't running regularly right now, but I'm a growing business also. And that is going to be... And that is always full of practical resources. I try not to do a lot of filling your mailbox with other things or, or inspirational. It's really, you know, a monthly thing that says, here's two things you can do that are really practical this month. That's great. Yay. So I feel like I should thank you on behalf of everyone for <laughs> helping artists because this is such a valuable resource and just information that you're providing the artist community. Well, and thank you guys for having me. I um, It's I don't know. I, I feel, this is silly, but I, I feel like when my uh, advisor said to me in, in college, have you looked into arts management? It was like a lifeline because I just enjoy working with artists so much. And uh, it's just such a privilege to do what I do. Yeah. And clearly you enjoy the work because I you do. speak so passionately about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And so I have finished my dirty martini <laughs> and I'm tanked. Awesome. <laughs> Happy hour. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye.